Hello, world, and welcome to another edition of the Slumgullion, America's only podcast. <laughs> no comment there. I am Jeff, and I have a candle that smells like Purell, and three hours behind me is Scott. Scott, how are you doing, sir? Well, it seems our detractors were wrong. Oh, we know what the naysayers have been naysaying, that podcasting time has come and gone, that it's it's roadkill on the information superhighway, doomed to be subsumed by TikTok or blipferts or whatever and go the way of the buggy whip and the blog. But now they're whistling a different tune, aren't they? You want social distancing? The slumgullion is leading the way, people, by having this conversation from two-thirds of a continent away. I mean, we al- we always do that. But but now it's not sad and pathetic. It's it's heroic. And, you know, and who who the hell knows where you even are? Listening in your car? Walking your dog? Pushing a rusty shopping cart through the bleak and eerie silence of a post-apocalyptic landscape? Whatever. At least you're not one of those jerks posting Instagram photos of yourself wolfing down a guac burger and a crowded red robin and second on the plastic tea to the tabletop ketchup dispenser like you somehow hope that stupidity is also contagious. Anyway, it dawns on me that we're living through the part of the post-apocalyptic action thriller Hollywood doesn't want you to see, the actual apocalypse. Usually that's over and done with by the time the movie starts, you know, and we're just we're just dealing with the post part. I, I mean, there are exceptions. It's like World War Z, Independence Day, War of the Worlds. But those are all movies about stopping the apocalypse. Movies, in other words, about hope. And we don't know if we're in one of those movies yet. Well, when you've got people who are filming themselves licking toilet seats and when you've got a bunch of brain-dead idiots who are going, well, to Congress. Oh, wait, no, 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 not Congress. Um, to beaches and 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 going down to Florida. And let's talk about Mayor Va- uh, no, Governor Vaughn of Florida, shall we? I thought the governor's uh, his name is DeSantis. I'm calling him Vaughn because he's keeping the beaches open. Oh, is he really... Oh, jeez. Oh, did you hear about that? No, oh, yeah, I didn't. Open. Oh, yeah. <sighs> that's, why he, that's why he's Governor Vaughn. <laughs> Before we get to the UMC portion of this episode, I do have one thing that, while it may not bring you hope, may bring you a little bit of a giggle. I could use one. You heard about the butthole cut, didn't have, haven't you? Oh, sure. Release the butthole cut. Unfortunately, this turned out to not be true. I knew it wasn't. Because they didn't mention the first part, which was before they hired someone to spend three weeks digitally removing buttholes from the VFX in Cats, they would have had to have hired a butthole team to spend up to a year digitally inserting buttholes into the various cats. To be fair, what the the, um, the guy did act was actually going in and cleaning up things, mm-hmm. but they they were not specifically buttholes. Apparently, <laughs> it is just what's the word I'm looking for? It it was like folds and flaps and bad. And it, they, while they were not specifically buttholes, it was just messed up animation that kind of looked like buttholes. Ah. So he so he he was cleaning up just CG, not specifically CG buttholes. They were they were faux buttholes. Well, and there's nothing worse for all parties. I mean, if you're heading heading in there, you see a butthole, 
and you're going for it, and then it turns out to have been just a, a shadow, well, that's embarrassing for you. But imagine the person on the other end. Think, you know, that's, oh, I got a butthole. Let's put this to use. Oops. Speaking of putting things to use, I mean, while I was sitting there watching Cats, my, one of the many, many questions that I had while I was watching the film, now granted I was very, very high when I watched it, so you can expect this, is how do they poop? Because I was thinking these cats have no buttholes. Mm. Well, they had no, well, I was going to say they have no visible genitalia, but I, I don't think my cats do either. Not that I've ever gone looking pervs. Oh, you know you have. I really honestly haven't. I didn't want to know. I've just, I've never accidentally come upon. And I mean, I grew up with dogs. There were times when doggy dicks are unavoidable. Let's just be frank. Like death in Texas. Like death in Texas. The dog's underbelly lipstick dispenser occasionally made its presence known. It's like, it's like that line they have the little girl saying in the MST version of Manos. Oh, mommy, the dog's sharp again. I forgot about that line. Oh, my God. That's hysterical. Oh, that is too funny. Um, well, We hope that everyone is well, especially those of you who are shut in. We hope you are taking your time, you know, relaxing, hopefully reading, not all just the Internet. Read a book. Read a script. Write a book. Write a script. Do things so you don't wind up killing each other in your apartments. Please just wait for the virus to do it itself. <laughs> I cannot believe I just said that. I, I, I can't believe you're surprised that you said that. Point taken. Yeah. No. I mean, my advice would be similar, but uh, slightly less ghoulish, which is <laughs> wait until you hear the violence break out in the apartment next door. And then write a script about people killing each other during a pandemic. I mean, let let the pandemic work for you. Let the pandemic pitch you an idea. This is this is so sad. Every time I hear well, back when I was a kid, every time I heard the word pandemic, this is just me being a geek. All I kept thinking of was thousands of pans. I don't mean the metal pans, I mean like the goat dude mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wandering around killing people. I didn't think of him wandering around killing people. I mean, that that thought occurred to me too. I wonder if it's commonplace or if we're just um, uh, we're in some sort of uh, weirdo synchronicity, but uh, I, I pictured him more like like tottering around on his little goat legs in a screaming uh, hysteria, like more of like a like a pandemonium screaming into the camera. Release the butthole cut. Because if anyone would be interested in that, it's that old satyr pan. He's been he's been sticking his wick in stuff since, you know, 800 B.C. He, he'd like something a little new. And, and the human hybrid cats. I got to tell you, I would much rather watch the butthole cut than the Snyder cut. I don't think there'd be that much difference, frankly. <laughs> yeah, either way, there's a lot of buttholes on screen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, today is our UMC episode. And oh, boy, did I pick an odd one. Oh, yeah. When you said, when we say unknown movie challenge, this hits every single one of those words with a sledgehammer. You gotta give me points for that at least. Oh, I do. I absolutely do. I give you points and then I deduct them for everything else. 
but you start out with a few. I, I completely understand. Now, I freely admit, okay, a little bit of backstory. As, I've been, as I was going through Tubi, yes, I was using Tubi, which is a great service. I freaking love it. If you can go through there, if you can handle their rather messy menus, you can find a wealth of phenomenal weird shit and cool shit. Agreed. Right now, when I'm bored, I'm rewatching Dark Shadows. They have almost the entire five-year run. So if you if you've missed flats flapping when doors close, and uh, people dropping their lines right and left, you're in luck. There's not there's nothing funnier than Dark Shadows when it's falling the fuck apart, which which happened like every. Other episode. Every other episode, yeah. But, okay, okay, since we're on this tangent, real quick, then I'll get into the movie. You gotta understand something. I remember, uh, I discovered Dark Shadows um, in 1979, I believe. Ah, latecomer. Please, it, it ended in 71. I was one year old. I was too, I was too busy still learning how to poop at that point. <laughs> but um, I, was living in, I was living in Florida every night. This one channel showed five episodes of Dark Shadows. Because there's hundreds of them. Yes, but I mean, they didn't, they did, they did a two and a half hour block. And I got just a little chunk of the show. And I knew what soap operas were because my mom loved soap operas. My stepmom loved soap operas. My grandma, my grandparents loved soap operas. And I started watching this because my one grandpa, my one grandma said this was a soap opera that had vampires in it. And I was like, oh. Okay, I need to check this out. And yes, things were falling apart and people were dropping their lines. But when it comes to story, that is one of the most batshit insane shows ever put on TV. Well, here's my story about Dark Shadows. I may have mentioned this before, and it only became significant in retrospect. I didn't really think anything of it at the time. But a friend of mine, the second of the three Scots that were in my grade in uh, elementary school, uh, grew up to be the most flaming individual amongst all the gay individuals I have known in my life. He was doing a twice a day Phoenix act in the high school quad by the time we reached that point. To use an old line from my Rocky Horror days, he could light a cigarette from 30 feet away. <laughs> Basically, yes. I mean, he was he was at least a pilot light in third grade. Gotcha. And he had a friend named Gregory who grew up to be a a, a more bespoke Gay. Still part of Scott's group, but, you know, overshadowed Am by... I bespoke? I would say you're bespoke, yeah. I accept that. Okay, continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So they built their whole lives around Dark Shadows. I oh, mean, God. every single... I could not get to class. They would have to have this conversation on the bus and all the way from the bus stop to the classroom door, recounting catching me up on everything that happened on Dark Shadows. Not that I cared. Not that they cared that I didn't care. They just wanted to have the experience of sharing it with somebody who had not experienced it already. So I thought this was just a weird little thing that I had. And then when Dark Shadows started showing up on Channel 31, and I think Secaucus, New Jersey, or wherever it came out of when I was living in New York, everybody who was excited about it were all the gay theater people I knew. Nobody else had any idea or could generate any enthusiasm. So there is something about the combination of soap operas and vampires that speaks deep to the gay soul. Just, I, it's apparently, from my, from my observation. Now, again, it's purely anecdotal, but it seems like there's an interesting marketing opportunity there. 
Well, look. Well, I, uh, now for me, for me, it it wasn't even Barnabas. I didn't even give two shits about Barnabas. For me, the show came alive once they started doing the time travel and the parallel time and bringing in. Once they brought in everything else, like that first whole Barnabas storyline, I was bored, fucking senseless. But the moment they did their first time travel storyline, I'm like, ooh, okay, now we're getting weird. <laughs> well, what? Because I started watching it purely as a form of self-defense so that so that when Scott and Gregory came toward me on the bus, I go, I saw it. I saw it. What got to me about, and, and I had a very similar experience because I was more into science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. and things like that, was when they started with the time travel stuff and you saw Barnabas in the past. Yeah. That's when it hit me in a way that vampires had never hit me before. It's like, oh my God, he was alive like during the Revolutionary War. All of a sudden, he had so much more gravitas and cool as a character because he had lived for two centuries or however long his lifespan, or his un, his dead span, undead span, whatever. You know what I mean? However long he'd been, you know, walking the earth. Somehow that made it clear to a little kid that what was cool about vampires wasn't that they sucked blood because that's gross and mosquitoes do it. What's cool is that they have all of this accumulated experience. I was almost said human experience, but they're no longer human. Experience of human society and societal evolution and change. And and that that got to me also when they when they came out with the uh Frank Langella Dracula. Do you remember that? Mm. Not a good movie because because the the campy elements of the Broadway production, which I saw and worked beautifully, uh with the Edwin Gorey backdrops didn't translate to a naturalistic cinema treatment. However, they had a great one sheet for it. The poster said something like, he's seen centuries pass. He's seen empires rise and fall. They went on and on about stressing how how old, how ancient Dracula was. Still, that made me go watch it, even though I heard it was bad, and it was bad. That's the part of vampires that I find so cool, probably because I was a history major. Maybe nobody else finds that interesting. No, that makes that. I, I, that, that, no, I, I get it. I get it. But anyway, that was a tangent. Um, yeah. I was going through Tubi, as I said, looking for a film for us to watch. And I happened upon a 1938 silent comedy written and directed by Orson Welles entitled Too Much Johnson. Alternate title, 60 Minutes of Joseph Cotton Attempting to Commit Suicide by Stunt. <laughs> Now this film isn't even, and here's the funny thing, and 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 I, I like I did, I hadn't watched the film. I just saw that it was Orson Welles, that it was called Too Much Johnson. I love that freaking title. So I said, Scott, I've got the movie, and I told him what it was, and he said, Oh yes. Now I did not know until I watched the film that um, a it's not even a complete film. Well, hang on, it, hang on. Let's let's start with the obvious. It is a complete film in that it is a film intended for public exhibition, but it is not a film intended for release to movie theaters as a movie. It's because this was to be part of a play. This is what I find absolutely fascinating about this story. Back in 1938, the um, Orson Welles' Mercury Theater was going to be putting on a production of a play called Too Much Johnson, which was written in 1894, I believe, or I believe it was 1894. 1894 by William Gillette, who's probably best known for introducing Sherlock Holmes to the stage. 
Okay. Ooh. Oh, you and your little tidbits. Mm, I love it. And it was apparently a, a very broad farce about a, a woman with a husband and a lover, and the, the husband finds out about the lover, and he winds up chasing the lover all the way to Cuba. Yeah, actually, the play, there's a bunch of other stuff about oil wells and... Right, right. I, I knew that there was a whole bunch of stuff in the play, uh, but this particular this particular film was was going to be was shot by Orson to be the filmed beginnings of each act. There was going to be a twenty minute film before Act One, and then two ten minute films films before Act Two and Act Three, basically setting up the play. Here's what's interest. Here's what's interesting to me. Orson Welles was doing some amazing, innovative work with the Mercury Theater at that time. The the Voodoo Macbeth, Julius Caesar set fascist Italy. Uh, it, it was all very intriguing stuff. And he was trying to push the envelope with this. When you look at the amount of trouble he went through to shoot this, it's pretty incredible. Unfortunately, he discovered that there were no facilities for movie projection in the theater where the show was being staged. So there were gaps in the story. And the whole thing turned out to be a big mess. But the film, which, again, as Jeff said, was not really a film, was thought to be lost. But a print, I think, was unearthed in 2011. In 2013. Okay. In, uh, was, I, think, I, I, actually, I actually did some research on this one, too, Scott. Yeah. It well, was that's, 2013. I can okay. remember that. Yeah. At a, a warehouse in, in, I think it was uh, Pordenone, Italy. Yep, yep, yeah, and it was, and it was restored. And did you? I don't know if you knew this or not, but they, uh, there was actually finally a production of the play with this movie. No, no, who did that? When was this? I cannot. I honestly don't remember. I think it was 2015. Um, it's it's a, a theater company actually did the play, and they used an edited version, the an edited down version of um because it was, it was originally only supposed to be like i said 40 minutes we watched the hour and seven minute work print it had multiple takes so we saw the same thing multiple times so it wasn't it was not a work print then work prints don't have multiple takes work prints are okay. the finished edit made with film that's used as a guide for the editor to cut the camera negative and and produce an edited negative that they can then strike prints from so the only reason I use the word work print is that's what they use at the beginning of Tubi. The unfinished work print. I was like, what? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, it's unfinished, but it's, yeah. I don't know what point in the production he just sort of threw up his hands and said, well, we can't use the film. Apparently, he edited it alone. This this amazes me that before Citizen Kane, he, he edited it alone in, so this was years, yeah. in his hotel suite at the St. Regis in New York on a rented moviola. John Hausman said that he would walk into the suite, but you had to you had to step carefully, pick your way through coils and coils of highly flammable nitrate film. So I, I think this was Wells's idea of a work print where he had the scenes he wanted and then he just stuck all the takes together and said, well, let's screen it. We can decide which ones we like best. Like originally, it was supposed to be 40 minutes long when it was actually cut down to the size he wanted. The fact that it's an hour and seven minutes is because there's a bunch of repeated stuff in it. A bunch of Apparently, I didn't know this until I did a little more research. You can find the, I believe, actually, I think at the time was 38-minute version on YouTube. Oh, is that right? 
apparently on YouTube um, because uh, they 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 do have the um, the edited down version with the new music score, and I believe there's even some dialogue cards thrown in. Yeah, there are no there are no intertitles in in the version on Tubi. Like it's 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 basically what what came out of Wells' Moviola. But it's the I don't know how it looks on YouTube, but the print on Tubi is astonishingly crisp. Except for that one scene at the very beginning during the hat removal, which we'll get to. Right. Yeah, we'll we'll get into the actual story, so to speak. I'd never heard any of this before, and I'm doing this research, and I'm like, this is just utterly freaking fascinating. And then when I found out the theater could, didn't even couldn't even show movies, I just I laughed so hard. Yeah, and I can, only, I can only imagine Wells's frustration after shooting all of that. And I mean, technically, he oh, they, they weren't they worked their asses off because there was a lot of Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd going on in this thing. Basically, Joseph Cotton is trying to do Harold Lloyd. Uh, he he is sensibly not trying to do Keaton because yeah. he did not have the gymnastic chops to pull that off, but. But Wells really committed to the concept. I mean, it's shot like a like a, a late teens Keystone comedy. There's harsh natural lighting, even indoors, which was a hallmark of early silent movies because they didn't have arc lights. They they would build their set on, a, on an outdoor stage and then just let the sun light everything. The sets are, are flimsy. They're obviously fake. They're, they're not worried about reality the actors use broad gestures that was the one thing that i that i that i thought was kind of interesting was the uh the, the acting is even over the top for silent film acting well because i think they're doing a parody because it, it, by this point the middle-aged people who would go to a broadway show because this because the production of gillette's too much johnson i mean first of all why would the mercury theater do a fusty old 19th century farce they would only do it if they could bring something unique to it. So the people who would buy tickets and sit in the loge or the orchestra at a, at a Broadway theater and watch this are people who would have remembered silent film comedies. So so they're they're exaggerating it because they are appealing to people's nostalgia. Force Awakens of the 1930s. Exactly. They use what looks like silent film makeup, the heavy pancake, the slightly exaggerated lips, and they used at times a slightly undercranked camera that makes everyone appear to be moving a shade too fast. Especially during the, um, for lack of a better word, act two chase scene. Right. But I thought when this started, because I decided not to do any research before I watched it, and I thought at first, oh, it's it's a, it's some weird experimental film. Because it, it really gets off to an incomprehensible start. There, there's, a, there's a woman filling a young man's suitcase with shirts while he rapidly and repeatedly puts on and takes off a straw hat. Then eventually he tries to pack a potted plant and the young woman argues with him. There, there, As we said, there's no intertitles, but presumably she's reminding him that there's no way the TSA will allow him to take that rhododendron with him through the fruit and vegetable inspection station. Then an older man with a Kaiser Wilhelm mustache enters and yells at everybody as Kaiser Wilhelm w would have done. So it's all, I'm thinking, oh, so it's, it's not supposed to make sense. I don't need to worry about that. And then we cut to Arlene Francis, who... Let's uh, not forget, we never see sorry. those first three people again. That's not true. Really? You are mistaken, sir. When did... When did... We'll get to that. I don't remember. Who showed back up? We'll get to that. 
we cut to Arlene Francis and and older listeners will remember her, I'm sure, from a slew of television game shows like What's My Line or right. To Tell the Truth. And she is young and and fresh faced and buxom and frolicking around in gay nineties underwear. And uh, having a blast. Having the obvious. time of her life. And she 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 slips a photo of Joseph Cotton into a picture frame over another man's photo. So it's like, oh, she's two-timing the first guy. She gets inappropriately sexual with the frame. And uh, while this is going on, uh, we cut to an exterior and gay young blade Joseph Cotton arrives at her door and he he does the exaggerated skulking and glancing around and being suspicious and furtive. So we know he's making whoopee with a married woman in, in case the whole picture swapping thing wasn't clear enough. And I have to say... I got a genuine laugh out of once he went into the apartment, the cop and all of the people standing there watching him go in with the lecherous smiles on their faces. Yeah, did you recognize the cop? I did not. John Hausman. Really? John Hausman in a cameo role, and he, he we'll see him again a little bit later, too. Okay, okay. But I mean, that that sequence got a genuine laugh out of me. I was like, okay, all right. That, that's kind of entertaining. That's, that's what I call committing to the bit, and I admire it. <laughs> now, Joseph Cotton arrived with a bouquet of daisies, which he immediately drops in shock as he beholds Arlene and all of her corseted and be-bloomered glory. And, and here's something else that made me think it was an experimental film. I, I still hadn't caught on to what they were doing. The flowers fall to a heap on the floor and they're all wilted and Joseph misses the hat stand with his straw boater. Then he walks across the bed and into Arlene's arms like he's Groucho Marx. And then the camera has a panic attack and rapidly cross cuts between the couple necking and the wilted flowers on the floor. I'm going, well, so, so somebody's losing their virginity, apparently. So, some, wh- one of them is getting deflowered. And Joseph Cotton's uh, you know, face with with uh, covered in plants. Her face. Uh, there was, yeah, this was definitely this was this was definitely a fuck scene. Oh yeah, she's got a, she has a potted snake plant, which and maybe this was a pun. It's also known as a mother-in-law tongue. the The plant starts molesting Joseph while he's trying to pitch woo, and then eventually, all three of them, Joseph, Arlene, and the potted plant, have a fully dressed, slightly off-camera climax, and then they fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> this which I this a random tangent, but this is this is sort of appropriate. There's a horrible video game called um the game is called Ride to Hell Retribution. Oh. And it's about a biker and there are several moments in the game when you can have sex and every sex scene the characters have all their clothes on. <laughs> So while 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 I'm watching the three-way between Joseph Cotton, Arlene Francis, and the plant, um, I thought two things. First was I've got a secret, and second was I thought of that ride to hell retribution. <laughs> I I never knew Wells was a gamer. Man, he was a, a Renaissance man. So it, <laughs> at this point, the husband comes home. The husband from the frame. And, oh, the husband. and this is a, this is an interesting thing. Joseph climbs out the fake window in the obviously fake set wall onto a real fire escape. And the chase is on. Before the chase, let's not forget, before the chase, we have, I guess you would call it an argument. 
between Arlene Francis and her husband when they get into a slap fight over his picture. Yes, and, and there he finds Joseph's picture and he's trying to grab it from her so he knows what his competition looks like. And she's pulling it back and he's pulling it back and then it tears in half. So basically all he has to go on is a is a photograph of Joseph Cotton's forehead. This will become a plot point later on. <laughs> And this guy, uh, you know, I mean, I I can't remember. I believe he does this in the apartment before the chase begins. But um, he pulls a fucking Snidely Whiplash. Oh, yeah. And he's got the mustache to do it with, too. I thought, oh, it's Snidely Whiplash. This is a joke because of the mustache. But he twirls the fucking mustache before he goes after the guy. That made me genuinely laugh, too. Right. Because it's. That's again, that, that's a wink and a nod to people in, in the audience who were, who were old enough to remember late 19th century melodramas. And there were a bunch of them. I mean, this was only 1938. Yes. Any 60-year-olds any, any would remember having seen that, even on Broadway back then. But uh, what I loved about the chasing, and, and the chasing takes up a whole bunch of the movie. The whole first part of it is goes through the meatpacking district in Manhattan, where I used to work, not, not as a meatpacker. Um, now, again, John Houseman appears as a Keystone cop who indiscriminately beats people with a nightstick, which is complete Max Senate stuff. Yep. Then he falls into a pile of wooden bushel baskets and flashes us an extended look at his crotch as he struggles and fails to get up. And people, if you've ever wanted to see Professor Kingsfield's legal briefs and uh, penal code, here's your chance. Yes, to use a to use a phrase from the Clone Wars, three words: the Bad Batch. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this this is this is sort of typical because there are there are no stuntmen, as far as I can see, which which is not surprising because it, it's not a movie studio making this. It's a it's a bunch of theater actors who do not employ stuntmen, and and this is basically this is basically the Mercury Theater's home movies. So we are treated to a long OSHA defined sequence as Joseph Cotton runs around the roofs and on ledges carrying a big ladder, which threatens multiple times to overbalance him. And and then he roller skates around on wooden dollies over cobblestones. I mean, he's lucky he didn't fracture a hip. He really is. The scenes the scenes are made worse by for me anyway, by Wells use of low angles Dutch angles, sometimes low Dutch angles. I mean, a bunch of stuff that shows up later in, in Citizen Kane. But anyway, they, all of these weird angles allow us to see way farther up Joseph Cotton's nose than any civilized person would request. It was hard to get through that part. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, I have to admit, seeing 1938 snot was a little bit disconcerting. It was, and he's working hard. It's not just snot. It's lots of bodily fluids. I mean, I hope I hope Joe didn't wear his own suit to the shoot because that thing takes a beating. And there are by the end of this sequence alone, there are two long streaks of perspiration that just soak through the jacket right over his shoulder blades. Yep. I mean, you don't generally see that, you know, outside of um, uh, porn. porn. Yeah, let's be honest, outside of porn. But I, I did enjoy the section where where Cotton is clinging to a peaked roof overlooking the L train because there are a bunch of office workers in their shirt sleeves crowded in the windows of the building across the tracks, just watching them film. Yep. 
<laughs> yeah, obviously they have no permits for any of this stuff. They are stealing every single shot. But that's one thing that tells the viewer, or at least it told me, that the stylized look of Citizen Kane was not all Greg Toland. I mean, he gets a ton of well-deserved credit. Yes. But but this thing, this thing was not shot by a master cinematographer. This thing was shot by a moonlighting newsreel photographer that Wells happened to know. And it's it's still visually striking. In fact, there's one very cool shot outside some tenements where Cotton is scrambling up a fire escape while Snidely Whiplash is d descending another fire escape. And we watch them go up and down through a spider's web of clotheslines strung every which way. to mention that shot. Strung, I fucking yeah. loved that shot. And it's found footage, basically, because you know they didn't dress this. It's not a set. It's just they poked their camera into an alley and said, guys, run up and down those fire escapes. Do it quick before somebody calls the cops. It told me that Wells, he always had an eye for, for daring and unusual compositions. But that that... That was that would be a striking shot in any there was, film. There was another shot um, in, in the same sequence. Uh, Joseph Cotton is in shadow and he's standing on top. Of, I don't want to call it a smokestack, but he's he's, he's on a roof and he's standing. He's on a chimney. He's on a chimney. He's in complete shadow, and then you see the city behind him. Mm -hmm. And th that was another shot that I went, "Holy shit, that's kind of gorgeous." However, all that praise aside. If I never see another shot of Joseph Cotton splayed atop a dormer window like he's dry humping Snoopy's doghouse, I I I'll be I'll be able to enter my house justified. There's another sequence that I want to talk about because at this point I I was thinking okay it's not an experimental film because it's 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 weird but not in that way it's not weird in oh I'm playing with the medium uh, because it was it was too much of an attempt to reproduce an already antique style so there was nothing avant-garde about it it was just it was just odd but but before before the, the chase gets insufferably tedious it, it does get unbearably weird when the villain who as you as you recall has a photograph of joseph cotton's forehead and he walks through the streets pulling the hats off random men single every single man he is flipping everybody's hat off so he can interrogate their hairlines. And this leads to a montage of puzzled men feeling the air above their heads for their missing hats. And it's kind of funny, but it goes on forever. And it does it does start to feel like something Bunuel would have shot when he was working with Salvador Dali. And then maybe cut from Andalusian Dog because it was, you know, like a little too weird. The one that I loved was the cop where, you know, the husband sticks his clawed hand out, mm -hmm. takes the cop, takes the cop's hat off. The cop doesn't know his hat is off until he goes to say hi to somebody and bashes himself in the forehead with his own nightstick. Right. I mean, that that's that's something else that, that, that lets you know you're you're watching a, a parody. He's yanking the caps off working class guys and even cops. And tossing them on the ground in a real silent film, in a real Max Senate silent comedy, he would have gotten punched, kicked and thrown in a paddy wagon for that. Instead, people just look puzzled like, well, this is odd behavior that seems to violate the social contract. I don't know what to do, except we must, we must, 
and they they they, they socially distance themselves from him because if as he, there's a, there's a sequence as he's like going for people there's a crowd of all the people like surrounding him but not actually going after him they're like trying to stay they're, they're staying together but they're staying away from him right the the lack of violence lets you know that this is not a silent comedy my favorite one of the of the hat dudes there's this one guy he's wearing the typical what'd you call the hat that joseph cotton was wearing he was wearing what's what was known in the era as a straw boater a straw boater i think it was another guy that had this i think he had a straw boater on a bunch of them did yeah then when snidely took off his straw boater he 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 winds up having this uh for lack of a better word very tim burton-esque hairdo underneath the hat and he slowly reaches his hands up to feel his hair with a look on his face like, whoa. We're getting a sudden cameo from a racer head. <laughs> that guy was awesome. That guy, yeah, he really, again, committing to the bit. More, more, more random tangents to throw in. There was one shot where he's like looking at the camera with that look on his face. And all I could think of was, Bunny. <laughs> yep. Um, so Joseph tries to hide in the crowd watching a parade of suffragettes and it kind of gets real silent film comedy esque because there's an actual funny bit where the men around Joseph Cotton doff their hats every time an American flag marches by and Joseph does Joseph does this kind of twitchy head fake to make it look like he's sort of doing the same thing um, but he's not pulling it off and so he steals a let women have the vote picket sign and and the chase is back on. But for like 35 seconds, it, it really was a Max Senate film. Um, or, or actually, you know what? I take that back. That's a Harold Lloyd bit. That's a situation Harold Lloyd would find himself in. And oh, so you asked where the people from the, the three people from the first uh, scene rec- recur. They recur at this point. Yeah. Because the old man with the Kaiser Wilhelm mustache and the woman who was packing and the guy who was putting on and taking off his hat return. They're in a car. And Kaiser Wilhelm sits in the car and screams and shakes his fist at us. That's right. I remember. I, I, you know, I didn't realize that was the same guy. Okay. Yeah. You're right. And then when he gets tired of yelling at us, he drives slowly in circles on a pier. I don't know why. And while this is going on, Joseph is trying to sneak aboard a mail boat to Cuba. And I guess hats were cheap back then because nobody picks up their hats after Snidely Whiplash tosses them on the ground. And as people, <laughs> the streets littered with hats. Littered with hats. Uh, it's like, it was like a, it would make a very weird, like twenty-eight days later shot. No humans, no people, just hats. What does it mean? Th- there's a shot of people lining the lining the rail, and they are waving goodbye to the people on the dock, and the men are throwing their hats, just tossing them away. I say, what are these things like? Twelve cents a piece? I don't know. Maybe they were trying to get the girls on the dock to show their breasts. And they hadn't they hadn't perfected that whole Mardi Gras bead thing yet. By the way, Joseph Cotton is a little spider monkey, isn't he? The way he climbs yeah. around that boat. I mean, this is this yeah. is where his parody of Harold Lloyd is very Harold Lloyd like. It's also a little Indiana Jones because he is scaling walls and jumping the gap between roofs. And that straw hat never comes off. Never comes off. <laughs> Before we got to the boat, during the, like, whenever, during the chase scene, whenever the camera was undercranked, you know, they were playing the silent music, but all I could think of was, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
Yeah, there was a little. Theme was would have played perfectly over that entire sequence, especially when they did the whole Scooby Doo thing, where they had that whole long, that one long shot where there was all the different alleys and they're running through the different alleys. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the way things were set up is like the chase scene is the setup for is the setup for Act One. The whole sequence before the boat. I have a feeling Act Two took, of the play took place on a boat. Could be. Never read it. It just feels. It just. It feels like you know. I mean, it feels like okay. We have the opening sequence of the guy escaping. You know, I mean, from the dude. At least the, the boat should be an act on its own, and then I'm assuming Cuba is an act on its own. I I guess because because after Joseph Cotton climbs around the boat for a while, evading Snidely, um, we cut to what looks like Jacques Tati in a cemetery in the rain on the edge of a cliff in Cuba, I think. And thanks to bad editing or stop motion or something, he teleports around the tombstones, weeping and doffing his his pork pie hat until he finds the grave of a little boy, Billy, which is very sad until you notice Billy's gravestone appears to be cardboard and hand-drawn. So I, I, I worked through the five stages of grief very quickly after seeing that. But then we cut to Joseph and he's wearing a white suit and a white hat and he's carrying a white parasol and he's mounted on a white horse and he's he's standing alongside a jungle stream in Cuba. And, and by jungle stream in Cuba, I mean uh, what is obviously a culvert in the Bronx. But he, he sits his steed bravely and shades his eyes gazing toward the horizon uh, while stagehands hold up fake palm trees next to him. Again, perhaps this was Wells' tribute to uh, Kuroko, you know, the, the, the black child stagehands who, who shift scenery and props in full view of the audience in traditional Japanese drama. Or, or maybe Joseph Cotton just got tired of getting whacked in the face by falling paper mache palms. I don't know. Anyway, the stagehands are in the shot and should have got their SAG cards for it. Oh, and then there's a sword fight. Yeah, with some guy, may, I'm, I'm, maybe he, part of the play, I don't know. He must have been, yeah, he must have been introduced in the second act, because we've never seen him before, but he is sword fighting Joseph on top of... Snidely. Oh, Snidely, right, right, Snidely. Yeah, he was, and, and Joseph Cotton is sort of like in the middle of the fight doing something. He's sword fighting Snidely. Right, but but they're on top of a cliff, and, and the camera's at the bottom of the cliff, so we mostly just see their heads and, and arms and hats. It's that was yeah when that when that sequence first started I honestly had no idea what was going on but then I said oh wait oh he's holding a sword okay. yeah it's again again if you saw the previous act probably makes sense then something that doesn't make sense Joseph and Snidely sink into what appears to be a pond of wastewater and again here comes the weird ass Bowellian take two young women run into camera range clutch each other. And open their mouths and scream. Fair enough. Then stop screaming. Then open their mouths and scream. Then stop. Then rinse. Repeat. It's just, it, it's weird. It's weird. I think at one point, one of the girls looked, it looked like she was looking off camera. So I, I personally, I could be wrong, but I think that they were just, they were, it was just the same, it go over and over again, do it again. 
and real, I, I don't think that was intentionally for the film. I do think that that's sort of like doing different versions to pick the right take. I think. Could be wrong, but that's what it looked like. That's what it felt like to me. It also feel like, because there's a few scenes where people look at the camera as, as they're walking or climbing. That that obviously renders the take unusable, but Wells kept it in. And a couple where people seemed like they were on the verge of breaking, breaking up. So I think some of this, was, I think he was going to, he was going to show this to the actors. And in addition to, to deciding what takes get the best reactions, I think some of it was just like the blooper reel that they show right. at, at rap parties. I think some of it was right. just was just for, for fun. But uh, that's pretty much the movie. I mean, they sink into the and water. It kind of looked like it kind of looked like by the end of this particular sequence, um, Snidely and, and Harold Lloyd kind of got together because, you know, they're, at one point they're walking off together, kind of arguing, kind of talking. We see them together in the water while it's raining. He holds up uh, an umbrella as they're in the as they're in the Hudson. <laughs> um, and yeah, that that is that is pretty much it. Well, if I, if I'm not mistaken. In the actual play, the actual 1894 Gillette stage farce, there's no real adultery. It's just presumed mistaken adultery because you have to have mistaken identity or mistaken belief in order to have a farce. So the fact that there is obvious boot knocking going on at the beginning of this is Wells' attempt to, again, update the farce. So it's not it's not clean and wholesome. There's actual adultery going on. There really is no way that you can watch that Arlene Francis, Joseph Cotton plant threesome and not think that it's a threesome. No, no, there, there's no... There's, there's absolutely no way you can interpret it any other way. It's a sequence... Going on. It's a sequence that lacks ambiguity. Let's say that. All it needs is a bounchick a wow wow. Yeah, exactly. A little yakety sax in the chase, a little a little wah-wah pedal in the uh, sex scene. Again, you basically got like an eight millimeter porn loop from Times Square circa 1971. And that was too much Johnson. <laughs> too much Johnson. Was it too much Johnson or was it just enough Johnson? I, I feel like it was probably too much Johnson, especially since we never find out who Johnson is. It's not Joseph Cotton. I still think, I personally think that that, that too much Johnson means exactly what, we, what I thought it meant. This is what happens. This is all the trouble that happens when a woman has two lovers. Too much Johnson. Could be. Did, we, they, even call, did they even call Generals Johnson back then? I don't know. I mean, uh, when you say back then, do you mean 1938 or do you mean 1894? Because slang changes quite a bit, as you know. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, it's, well, especially considering, you know, in 38, if, if, if indeed you're right and there was no boot knocking in the original play, since there obviously is in the Wells version, I would say then. I'm sure they leaned into that. I mean, I always I wondered that myself when I was watching a bunch of old um, commercials from the early 50s. And one was for Johnson Wax. And I just wonder, did anyone ever get the wrong idea about this and try to use it as a as a marital aid or a sexual lubricant? Because I, I don't think that would have worked that well. But um, Johnson Wax, there you go. Oh, <laughs> but I, maybe well, I got to tell you, as weird and as unfinished as this was, I kind of thoroughly enjoyed watching it just, just as a time capsule period piece thing. Oh, I found it uh, very absorbing and also terrifying. 
because I knew that the stuff that, that Joseph Cotton was doing, you know, whirling around on a peaked roof with a, two ladders lashed together, maybe they had a mattress on the ground. But if he fell, it's a good chance he didn't know how to fall, that he was going to just snap his neck. I mean, I just the, the film had me in a way that that Harold Lloyd thrill thrill comedy did not in that I was confident Harold Lloyd knew what he was doing and was at, at no point in mortal peril. I was not so sure about Joseph Cotton. The, the third man could have had a very different cast. <laughs> so apparently this wasn't that. And this was this was Wells pushing for Cotton because apparently he was not. I don't know if he was not known as a comic actor, but this was according to what I read. Wells was so sure that, you know, Joseph Cotton was going was was a it was show. I think the phrase that I read was so sure of Cotton's comedic talents. Is is the that bad? That's the quote. I've I've never really thought of Joseph Cotton as ha ha funny, but I will say that he is the very definition of game. He was game, oh, man. And I'm just to make things easy. I'm going to I'm going to use that to slide right into my fascinating for this, which was Joseph Cotton's performance. Now, I'm going to do a dual fascinating here, if I may. Please. A, because as you said, he was fucking game for everything in this movie. Oh, yeah. He obviously, the trust that he obviously had for Wells. Was slavish and grossly ill-advised, in my personal opinion. I won't say whether you're right or wrong. You're right. But still, I mean, he, he went for it. I'm, I certainly hope he, I certainly hope that he survived with no scratch, I mean, without any major injury. But you know that guy got scratched and bruised. You know. Oh, yeah. Well, you just look at, at, at the, the amount of brick and mortar dust he was leaving on his elbows and his knees. Those, those things were scratched up and swollen the next day. You know that. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and my other fascinating thing was I just found it interesting that three years before Citizen Kane, you can see what an absolutely brilliant director as far as like composition Orson Welles was, because as we already said, there are some sh individual shots in this thing that are absolutely fucking beautiful. Yes. That it's 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 I'm I'm looking at this going okay yeah I can see that after watches I'm like I totally believe that the man who directed this would direct Citizen Kane three years later I totally buy it yeah now my irritating thing and this is this is one of the first times that it isn't directly related to the film but to the story is I wanted to know what the fuck was going on yeah you're not gonna get that just from watching these filmed segments no no i mean it was fascinating as a time capsule and watching you know a very young director and a very young actor you know really doing some phenomenal stuff but for actual story the story dude in me is going okay how does this tie in where why, why did he go to, what is going on here? It, it's one of the rare films where the more you watch the less you know what's going on that is such a well a, a great way to put it scott thank you but yeah, no, no, no. For, for the for the first time, I can say, yeah, my irritating thing is 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 I wanted to know more, and there was nothing there. <laughs> Scott, you sir. Yes, it, it it was a it was a fascinating experience, and and one I'm not eager to repeat anytime soon. But I was reading that Wells' biographer Brett Wood thought the film segments 
were Wells' attempt to, as I said, recreate the multimedia presentations from the earliest days of film, when that was typical. There would be stage acts, slideshows, one-reeler movies, uh, all in the same bill. And it makes sense to me because why else would a visionary like Wells, who was making headlines with every tradition-defying Mercury Theater show at that time, want to dust off this old 19th century farce? It would be like Mike Nichols doing a dinner theater production of Charlie's Aunt. Kind of a waste. So I get that. Okay, no, I want to see that. <laughs> he, does, he stages it like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Everyone's really bitter about Charlie and his aunt. I, want to see I wish that would have happened. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I get the conceit. But what's really interesting to me is this wasn't just a throwaway bit of business to liven up this creaky old vehicle. He shot... 25,000 feet of film all over New York from Battery Park to Yonkers. They mm -hmm. built sets. They fit the actors with period-appropriate costumes. They brought in picture cars. They assembled large crowds of extras. And yet, after going through all that trouble, it's only after Wells assembled a 60-minute print of the film that he realized the ceiling of the theater where they were staging the play was too low to project movies. The, the simultaneous attention to and blindness to detail is astonishing. It's like you rarely see those two hand in glove like that. Another interesting thing, just is throwaway, in addition to a, a cameo by John Hausman's crotch, I also saw Mary Wicks. Mm -hmm. If the name's not immediately familiar, she's one of those character actresses who you would immediately know her face. She played lots of nurses, lots of housekeeper roles. She was... Um, she was Sheridan Whiteside's nurse in The Man Who Came to Dinner. She was another nurse in Now Voyager. Um, she was the busybody hotel keeper in White Christmas. And in this, okay. she puts her uh, comedic gifts to work by watching a woman pack a suitcase. Packing suitcases is a major theme of this work. And uh, then tromping up the gangplank to the mailboat several times. Irritating. Irritating is the same thing that irritates me about pretty much every Joseph Cotton film, which is Joseph Cotton. He's not a bad actor. Not. Yeah, he's not a bad actor. He's not a bad actor at all. But I just don't get the appeal. And even when I'm not looking up at the contents of his nose, I'm still not enjoying him being on screen. I don't know. It's just it's a matter of personal preference. Again, not not really not really a substantial criticism of any sort. Uh so I can't necessarily recommend that people watch this unless you happen to have French's copy of uh, Too Much Johnson, the stage play, in which case, presumably, you can follow along. Or if you are a Wells aficionado who's seen all of his work and want to see something you've never seen before. Yes. As long as you go into it knowing what you're about to see. And what you're about to see is is bizarre and sort of indulgent and, and, and flabby as as far as its pace but really does contain a lot of experiments and a lot of groping through the medium that is going to pay off in three years when he does Citizen Kane. So, yeah, uh, from that, from I'm, that I'm point. I'm exceptionally happy that I found it. 
I am too. I'm glad I saw it. As as I, a as a I, big I, Wells fan, I, I'm very, as much as I w- as much as the show would have known what was going on story wise. I'm very, I'm very glad that I, that that I got to see it. And and if it, and I promise I will I will no I will not pick a silent film again. I happen to be a silent film fan. I don't mind. But if you do pick another silent film, uh, please pick a silent film that's actually a silent film and not whatever the hell this thing is. I understand. That's exactly. Yeah, I suppose I should have done research before I actually suggested it, but I'm sorry. Orson Welles silent and too much Johnson. You know, if I'd known what it is going into it, I still would have wanted to see it. So that wouldn't have mattered. That's right, right, right. Well, all right, folks. Uh, thank you for joining us in our in this excursion into 70s soap opera and late 1930s what the actual fuckery. We will see you in about a week with our BS episode of The Slum Gullion, and hopefully it will be our overview of Picard Season 1. It may not be, but that's what I'm hoping for. And until later, stay safe and later. And may all of your Johnson be just enough. <laughs>